By the late 19th century, medicine in Britain functioned legally as a single profession. The formal unification of the three branches of medicine under the 1858 Medical Act led to renewed concerns over status and respectability among medical men and resulted in concerted efforts to distinguish their profession from uh, a mere trade. Medical professionals became more identifiable through shared characteristics such as an increasingly specialised core body of knowledge, exclusive publications in which to circulate this knowledge and more formalised educational standards. Medical practitioners were also united in less easy to characterise unwritten codes of ethics, etiquette and behaviour, which, amongst other things, sought to distance medical practice from commercial activities such as advertising. And contravening such codes could result in expulsion from the profession and leave the offending practitioner uh, unable to legally practice medicine. Indeed, practitioners of the period were all too aware of this balance they were required to strike between professionalism on the one hand and the almost unavoidable commercialism that's characteristic of this particular period. So in 1902, Robert Saundy, uh, University Professor of Birmingham, and General Secretary of the BMA said, there is probably no profession whose members in their daily life are so frequently confronted with circumstances which try their tact and discretion to the uttermost. Of course, he might have well said that, given that he was involved in that profession, but nonetheless. Um, Historians have also recognised this tension. Um, Robert Baker, Dorothy and Roy Porter have stated that at the root of all ethical medicine was the distinction between medicine as an art in the service of humanity and medicine as a commercial endeavour engaged in primarily for the profit of its practitioners. Despite this legal code, large numbers of practitioners seemingly risked their livelihood and became intimately involved as both consumers and contributors to advertising in one particular form, the medical trade catalogue. So the medical catalogue is an advertising publication, usually hardbound. Here's a few examples. Uh, And inside they consist of listings of numerous instruments, appliances, uh, apparatus, pharmaceuticals, and these are accompanied by... um, short bits of text, um, descriptions, an illustration, and a price of the product in question. So there's some tourniquets and trephines, etc. Um, So these books often contain over 100 pages, sometimes as many as 1,000. This one on the right-hand side is one of the largest of the period, of about 1,500 pages. Um, And these were produced every two to three years, depending on, on the company. So practitioners used these catalogues to purchase their products for everyday practice, but also um, contributed to the content in the form of text, their own testimonials, and also advertising their own product designs. And I'll I'll come back to this uh, as we go through. So it appears that a tension exists between the systematised ethics to which practitioners were expected to subscribe and the actual reality of their involvement in this particular form of uh, advertising. So what I want to do in this paper is examine this apparent tension and argue that the conflict between professionalism and practitioner involvement in advertising simply didn't apply to this particular form as it did to other forms. Um, And I want to really bring out... um, four main themes in order to provide 
reasons for this. So the first theme I want to address is the different types of audience that there were for the medical trade catalogue and also for other types of advertising. Profit procurement is the second point I want to discuss. Um, so were practitioners um, receiving any profit from their involvement with the, the catalogue and other types of advertising? The third point is, um, did practitioners, how did it affect their professional recognition and reputation? And the fourth point is this, this phrase, the advancement of medical science, which became kind of uh, the rhetoric, not only used by the profession, but emulated by all the different types of advertising. Um, so these four themes are very much kind of interlinked, but I'll discuss each one in turn. Um, of course, one of the problems with looking at ethical codes is the assumption that all practitioners were either united in their opinions on conduct or not. And of course they weren't, different practitioners thought different things, did different things, etc. But I want to highlight really what the professional ideal was and what practitioners were meant to um, aspire to. So what I want to do um, with this particular case study is broaden the scope of economic medical history and promote a perspective that professional medicine during this period was not solely a clinical art or practical science, but was also an industry that sought promotion and the generation of profits. So historians such as Anne Digby in Making a Medical Living have recognised that practitioners had always been merchants exchanging their service for fees not only, but this was not intention with the fact that they were professionals. They, these things went hand in hand. And others have highlighted the medical marketplace as a key conceptual framework for analysing the exchange of goods from suppliers to general consumers or patients. So the recent uh, edited volume, Medicine in the Market, by uh, Mark Jenner and Patrice Wallace, for example, focuses on an earlier period. However, there's not really much written about the medical marketplace um, in, this, in this particular period, and there's even less written about the doctor as a consumer and uh, as a contributor to these things. But I argue that practitioners played a key role as consumers and promoters of medical products, but this role complemented rather than conflicted with their professional sensibilities. Okay, so point one, the type of audience... Securing a healthy and balanced relationship between the practitioner and his patient had always been at the heart of the ethical code. So as a figure of authority and in a position of power, the practitioner had various opportunities to abuse the trust of his patient, and providing testimonials for the effectiveness of medical products was one way of abusing this trust, and therefore deemed unethical. In his 1878 publication, The Code of Medical Ethics, Dukes de Styrap expressed his disapproval. He said, It's extremely reprehensible for a practitioner to attest the efficacy of patent or secret medicines or in any way to promote their use. Only slightly less culpable is the practice of giving written testimony in favour of articles of commerce and tacitly or otherwise sanctioning its publication. So as practitioners saw it, retailers were taking advantage of the ignorant masses by making grand sweeping claims about the curable properties of their usually useless or worse, dangerous medicines. And I've just got some examples here. The Holloway's pills are obviously one of the kind of most famous and well-known brand of uh, patent medicines and aim to cure everything. Um, and on the right is an example of Melin's food. Um, and this, is, this advert is a kind of typical general advertising, very prominently 
just on the right is a testimonial from Edith Cleveland saying, look at my baby, look at what this food did for the health of my babies. This, this is the kind of thing that doctors are opposed to. As benevolent and altruistic professionals, practitioners should protect patients, and campaigns such as the one launched against patent medicines by the BMA in 1909 were said to do just that. Obviously, as Laurie Loeb, Peter Bartram and others have pointed out, these campaigns were, could have been wrapped up in the disguise of altruism and were actually about ensuring medicine vendors went out of business and protecting their professional monopoly rather than protecting the public. But I don't think there's any kind of way of telling these two things apart. They were probably both true, maybe to equal degrees. But the point really is that in the ethical codes, it was all wrapped up in this kind of altruistic rhetoric. Practitioners publicly blamed newspapers for exacerbating the problem of promoting worthless medicines by showing a complete lack of restraint in including advertisements such as this. So Styrak went on to say... The newspaper press, so powerful in the correction of many crying abuses, is unfortunately too ready for the sake of lucre to aid and abet the enormities of quackery by the insertion of its offensive advertisements. Echoing the same sentiment, practitioner Thomas Garrett Horder, in the, uh, addressing the BMA in 1895, stated, For the poor, whose means are as limited as their knowledge, we have a right to say to the authorities and to the press generally that it is a cruel thing to allow such gross perversions of the truth to appear in the public prints. And whatever the reason, you know, for them saying this, they're certainly the, the, patri- the, pa- the, the patronising nature of these things is certainly clear. Um, practitioners who did provide testimonials were often shamed within the pages of medical journals, and in some more serious cases, uh, practitioners were struck off the register, as in the case of Henry Albert of Leeds and uh, Thomas Allenson of London. Both Albert and Allenson endorsed what were considered as controversial products, contraceptives in the case of Albert and Allenson, uh, and brown bread in the case of Allenson, but it was the fact that these endorsements were printed in general publications that was most problematic. In the 1889 legal reports of Albert versus the GMC, the BMJ asserted that the main problem was not the controversial type of product, but publishing in a cheap and popular form information which, however legitimate in its proper place, may be used for worse purposes. Similarly, during Allenson's trial in 1892, the prosecutor responded to Allenson's claim that the practice of practitioners providing testimonials was exceedingly common by stating that he had provided these testimonials in an objectionable and reprehensible manner, namely that he had provided these testimonials for the inclusion in general newspapers such as the Weekly Echo and the Times. And it's just nice to go back to this um, picture of Allenson. At the bottom it says, under his picture, wheat, the whole wheat, nothing but wheat, which is a play on his kind of prosecution uh, at his trial for being struck off and the truth, the whole truth. But you know, the, and on the right-hand side is an advert for Allenson's wholemeal bread, which he became, he went on to be a baker after being struck off the medical register, and you can still buy Allenson's bread today, and in fact the factory is in the town I went to school, so that's just by the by, but just interesting nonetheless. Um, In stark contrast, the catalogues and any practitioner endorsements that contained within them were strictly not for general consumption. So in the preface to catalogues, companies explicitly stated 
that they were for the consumption of professionals only, and therefore before distributing catalogues to new customers, they would check the register for evidence of qualification. Of course, many of the products promoted within the uh, catalogues were only going to be suitable uh, for practitioners, or uh, companies would certainly have been liable had any can't come to someone unwielding an amputation knife or something who wasn't qualified. But the point really is here that this exclusivity of the publication corresponded with the ethics of the profession. And the fact that one company called their catalogues ethical advertising highlights the importance of this professional readership. Furthermore, many consumers of and contributors to the catalogue were practitioners of fairly high social standing and thus highlighting their acceptability amongst the audience. Um, Henry Trenton Butlin was a respected St. Bart's throat surgeon, president of the BMA at one time and the Royal College of Surgeons and ordered regularly from catalogues and promoted many of his tool designs inside them. He had a great deal of influence um, in London among the staff at St. Bart's and the large number of students that he taught uh, throughout his career and also members of the numerous professional organisations and societies to which he was affiliated. Practitioners like Butlin also frequently provided companies with testimonials for products in their, uh, promoted in their catalogues to absolutely no complaint or prosecution. And sometimes companies uh, used as many as 15 testimonials from different practitioners for one product. And catalogue producers commonly invited readers to visit their premises to view these uh, testimonials. And this acted as a form of transparency, and one which was all too often absent uh, from the companies that advertised to the public. And furthermore, the inclusion of the name and address of the practitioner providing the testimonial alongside uh, their actual testimonial meant that even the most suspicious of readers could check uh, the evidence of qualification and contact the practitioner for verification. These catalogue testimonials were also replicated from medical journals. Um, an extract from the BMJ, uh, for example, uh, in 1903, quoting Fletcher Little regarding his modification of Richardson's smigmograph, was included in Allen and Hanbury's 1910 catalogue. Okay, so... The key point here is the different types of audience, the professional audience for the catalogue and the kind of general consumer for other types of advertising. So now I'll move on to the procurement of profit. So excluding members of the general public from the readership meant that much of the patient-practitioner code of ethics was not applicable. A different kind of ethics therefore applied to practitioner involvement with the catalogue. A kind of ethics that sought fair conduct between practitioners Rules for interprofessional etiquette, as it was commonly known, were less straightforward than lo those laid out by practitioner-patient relationships. Indeed, there was much more consensus on the ways practitioners may abuse their position of power in a relationship with a patient. However, interprofessional etiquette was no less important. In fact, Horder commented that its importance can hardly be overstated. So practitioners commonly defined this etiquette, given they had no other way to do it, in one golden rule. Do to others as you would have done to you, which is pretty vague and not particularly useful. But as already discussed, while the inclusion of practitioner testimonials in catalogues seemed to be acceptable within this etiquette, their inclusion in public prints was not. 
And this was primarily because practitioners who provided testimonies for prints circulated among the profession received no payment in exchange. Quite the opposite, in fact, of those like Albert and Allenson, who often financially benefited from the provision of testimonials circulated among the public. In his address to the BMA, Horder made a plea. Let us discard as much as possible everything that tends to degrade our calling into a mere money-making concern, and then we shall probably set up a high standard of morality and our dealings with each other. So the key point here really is that he's talking about each other and um, practitioners. Indeed, both interprofessional etiquette and ethical codes of conduct prohibited practitioners from pursuing pecuniary gain from their activities, even indirectly. In 1895, George William Potter, a representative of the London Medical Ethical Section of the BMA, and quite a pernickety about this, described those who provided testimonials for public consumption as, quote, a most cunning and tricky class of practitioner, because the appearance of their name in public prints also endorsed them as a practitioner for which they implicitly therefore sought benefit. And there's all sorts of really hilarious uh, campaigns that Potter tried to launch about against practitioners with too big a name plaque outside their offices. Just This, this is unnecessary, he's over-advertising his services, etc., but uh, he, he was quite keen on this, this idea that practitioners shouldn't advertise to the public. In contrast, there's evidence to suggest that practitioners provided catalogue testimonials because they had a genuine belief in the effectiveness of the product they endorsed. Obviously, these, these were products that they were going to use on a day-to-day basis, not the public. And often their beliefs were based on extensive product testing uh, and the testimonials represented their desire to share their experiences with other members of the profession. So as an example, Walter Whitehead, surgeon at Manchester Royal Infirmary, provided an unsolicited testimonial for a, a portable cautery battery um, that, and stated that he'd been treating patients by, with the, by using the battery for four years with complete satisfaction. And conversely, testimonials for retail products outline product satisfaction, but were a bit fishy with often exaggerated detail. They were often formulaic, indicating they were ghostwritten by a member of the company uh, and the kind of sort of signature just a, a later edition. And Potter highlighted this exaggerated, an exaggeration of a particular testimonial who claimed the practitioner claimed to have treated over 700 cases of influenza with a patent medicine. And he said if this statement is to be believed, this practitioner would have seen 23 fresh cases of influenza a day during the epidemic at this time, which is just a bit ridiculous. So far, the profession accepted practitioner involvement with catalogues because the publications were only circulated amongst qualified practitioners, and as a result, practitioners' provision of testimonials did not result in any direct profit-making. So I'm going to move on now to the third theme, professional recognition and reputation. In Potter's description of a most cunning and tricky class of practitioner, interprofessional etiquette condemned the ubiquitous appearance of a practitioner's name anywhere, because through this kind of publicity, practitioners indirectly sought profit. But the promotion of practitioners' own tools within the catalogue caused no complaint despite their widespread appearance. So just as an example, this is a couple of pages from Rice and Sons' 1889 catalogue of obstetric forceps. 
So on the right, you have images of some of the forceps, and on the left, a list of who, who invented them and who they're named after. And it only goes up to C, so you can imagine how many pages of just obstetric forceps there are. In com companies promoted tools designed by some of Britain's most successful practitioners who did take the ethics and etiquette of their profession very seriously. So over 50 tools designed by Leeds-based surgeon Berkeley Moynihan were advertised in many of the catalogues of many of the companies throughout his career. And he was considered an exceptional surgeon, craftsman, and like Butlin, one-time president of the Royal College of Surgeons. Um, going back to Butlin, he had his... Um, scissors for Turbinate also advertised in the pages of more Sun and Sons catalogue. The inclusion of eponymous tools was accepted because it created a reputation for the practitioner as a medical innovator, but almost certainly meant no profit would be received through these inventions. So, for example, medical students would say to a medical instrument maker, I would like Butlin's scissors for Turbinate, etc., etc. The name would be circulated, pass me Butlin's scissors for particular operations. Um, in fact, within the confine of the profession, this kind of career advancing was positively encouraged and obtaining such a reputation was seen as kind of a fitting reward to those who allowed medical science to advance through tools in much the same way that medical uh, disorders were eponymous. So Parkinson's disease, named after James Parkinson's, for example, or Down syndrome, named after John Landon Down who actually, interestingly, was a very avid catalogue reader and contributor. Um, practitioners should be willing to share their inventions freely with other members of the profession who could subsequently then go on to modify them um, as they wished with the aim of improving them. So if we go back to the example of the smigmograph, uh, Little tried to improve uh, Richardson's design of the smigmograph. By extension, the reputation of the whole profession would be enhanced in the eyes of the public. So the profession viewed practitioners' contribution to the catalogue as career advancing and linked to this very much so is the final section, the final theme I want to talk about, which is the, the advancement of medical science. Catalogues frequently included the term the advancement of medical science, or similar such phrases, because they echoed sentiments of the ethical code and were thus designed to be more appealing to the professional sensibilities of, the, of practitioners. So Styrat, for example, suggested that advancing medical science was one of the key aims of the profession which code of ethics were established to defend. Potter, in his BMA address, stated that if medical advertising were to become general, medical science would cease to advance. Indeed, if you look at the language of the testimonials, the one provided by Little, he states how new products are improvements, emphasising the idea of progress. Little states his invention will remedy the defect of Richardson's design, thus always progressing. In his 1889 catalogue, Orthopaedic instrument maker Gustav Ernst asserted that the purchase and use of his tools and appliances would aid the advancement of orthopaedic science. Similarly, electromedical electro appliance supplier Shallonson state uh, how ionic medication had advanced medical science. And then in its 1910 catalogue, Burroughs Welcome and Co. state, the rule of thumb is dead and the rule of science has taken its place. So there's loads more examples of this kind of... Uh, emulation of this language, but the key point is here that companies aimed to better appeal 
to uh, practitioners and to kind of situate themselves in line with medical ethics rather than opposed to it. Eponymous tools therefore permitted development, but conversely, patents created a barrier to medical treatment, as one BMJ correspondent put it. And this was a key reason that strict ethical guidelines existed prohibiting practitioners from patenting their inventions. As a result, catalogues promoted relatively few products patented by practitioners during this period. Clearly, practitioners perceived the restriction of a tool development as a more serious offence than some profit (coughs) that may be earned from the registration of a patent. So in 1902, Sornby stated that an instrument or other article may be patented to secure propriety rights and then sold outright so as not to retain any commercial interest in it. But it is even better to give such discoveries and inventions freely to the profession and the public. However, the issue surrounding patents was not so straightforward. Patent restrictions seemed to be one of the most controversial issues in interprofessional etiquette, especially during the early years of the 20th century. Some practitioners, particularly younger members of the profession, were prepared to criticise this etiquette in favour of patenting their own product designs. So in 1912, an American practitioner asserted... The ethical prohibition against patenting surgical instruments is a tradition from one generation to another and its transmission from one code or principles to the next seems to us the illogical adherence to a tradition merely as such. In in 1910, an anonymous correspondent in the BMJ stated, One of the most noted scientific men of our day who has lately been raised to the peerage patents his apparatus. Surely this is not trade. And presumably this correspondent was referring to Lord Kelvin, who between 1854 and 1907 successfully filed more than 70 patents for various types of scientific instruments, such as electrical conductors for telegraphs and instruments for measuring uh, electric current. In their publications, both Styrap and Sornby suggest that the rejection of this etiquette was likely just to be because younger members of the, gen- of the profession were ignorant and just needed better education in etiquette. However, both the authors of the quotations, anonymously, uh, quite forcefully argue that patenting was f- important for the advancement of medical science rather than contributed to its restrictions. So they saw pat- patents as better protecting the intellectual property of members of the profession than just eponymy but it allowed disclosure on registered information on the design. Indeed, as these practitioners saw it, the patenting of scientific instruments was doing no harm to the profession of science. As a result of this controversy, there was a noticeable but small increase in the promotion of products in the catalogues throughout the period patented by younger members of the profession, but still nowhere near as many patented instruments by practitioners that appeared in scientific instrument catalogues and this obviously functioned within a different set of ethics so uh, it's a different kind of case so just as an example um, John Duncan Menzies was uh, a young ambitious naval surgeon stationed at Plymouth and he com- he designed a new uh, stretcher ambulance for naval use and for getting around the ships uh, injured and carrying injured men. Um, And he's quite forceful about um, 
patenting his design because he was really frightened about this other practitioner stealing his design and then taking all the benefit for it, not just financial, but the reputation that came with it. So that is the reason he patented. Also, it's interesting that this debate, whether patents restricted or actually enhanced technological development, was in no way confined to the profession at this time, but happened in all sorts of trades and industries. Um, And they obviously operated within different sets of ethics, but this is a particularly interesting case. So practitioners seem to provide much of the catalogue content for the purpose of advancing medical science and hence advancing their profession. And types of content other than testimonials and their own tools include reports of medical research. So a good example in this period is information related to bacteriology, Um, alongside the promotion of new kind of products like sterilisers and pasteurisers. So an improved milk steriliser in Allen & Hanbury's 1910 catalogue featured alongside quite a detailed extract on bacteriology from London-based bacteriologist Richard Tanner Hewlett's publication, Manual of Bacteriology Clinical and Applied. Alongside this mortality statistic for tuberculosis obtained from the report of the Royal Commission on Tuberculosis were featured and statistics for summer diarrhoea for 1905. So these statistics acted as a rhetorical device in justifying the need for such products but also provided the numerical data which were valued by the scientifically minded practitioner of the period. The inclusion of such content gave the catalogue the similar content and credibility to that of a medical textbook, a form of publication every practitioner was familiar, became familiar with first at medical school, then used as continual reference material in current practice, then as authors. So uh, medical text was obviously used throughout the whole of their professional career. And this is one crucial way that the catalogue differed from other forms of advertising. And some catalogues included much more than textual ad- extracts, but as in the case of K. Shao, was actually half a textbook and half a catalogue. So electrical, electromedical instruments and their management is the first half of this text, and the second half is illustrated price list of electromedical uh, apparatus. So read about it and then buy your stuff from us, basically. Catalogues also included similar product illustrations to those featured in textbooks, and this also played a key role in further shaping the publication into a more um, mnemonic device. The appearance of line drawings produced by engravings in both catalogues and medical text continued way into the 20th century, despite developments in printing which enabled the cheaper production of colour illustrations and also half-tone images. In contrast, companies advertising to the public began to take heed of the advice of advertising experts and adopt all kind of new, snazzy, exciting printing techniques to make their products more visually appealing. But catalogues continued to include engravings because they reproduced clear lines, and from them, practitioners needed to be able to assess the exact dimensions of the product before deciding to to purchase it and use it in delicate medical procedures. So just as an example... There were you know, many, many different types and sizes of tracheotomy pipe, but you needed to find the right one for the right type of patient, etc. Um, and also delicate instruments like, again, Butlin's scissors um, for turbinate needed to be the right size. It was very important that they you know, cut the right bit of the nose and not the wrong bit. Uh, and then you have the very straight lines with the scale next to the illustration. In contrast, half-tone reproductions produced fuzzy images, 
with a multitude of dots instead of clear lines. So these half-tone images were only used in texts and catalogues when the assessment of tool dimensions was unnecessary. So for aprons, for example, or here, with an example of um, post-mortem aprons at the top and then clear line drawings of uh, bone-cutting forceps at the bottom. And then on the right, you've got image of um, someone disfigured... Uh, probably for war, and then this kind of really high-tech device for covering that glasses with a false nose. But the point is, the instruments are uh, clear lines, and the, the images of the people are half-tones. Indeed, the relationship between catalogues and textbooks was so close that the same engraving blocks were used in both types of publication. And in textbooks, practitioners cited catalogues for illustrations rather than the other way around, and thanked companies in the preface for lending them their blocks. So, in his operations of surgery, Walter Jacobson cited Down Brothers' catalogue of 1894 for the use of over 10 illustrations. The direct referencing of a catalogue within a medical textbook can be some indication that practitioners not only read catalogues, but found the content important enough to reference in their own work. This was not at odds with medical ethics, but a common and accepted practice. So internally, the content of a catalogue resembled the content of a medical textbook, but the outward appearance of the catalogue also contributed to its acceptability within the profession. With its hard-bound, cloth, gilt covers, it appeared more like a textbook than promotional literature. And in fact, without the suggestion of a General Moore, a practitioner based in India in 1882, Burroughs, Wellcome & Co. may not have produced catalogues in this form at all. Moore suggested the company bound their advertising literature detailing all products like books. And as a result, the company produced 40,000 of these catalogues bound in leatherette and cloth. To achieve this same appearance, medical companies used medical textbook printers, often those with decades or more of experience in producing medical publications of a high standard. So, for example, J. Wright of Bristol printed Shaw's catalogue of 1913, and he was also... Uh, the printer of Walter Pye's work on surgical treatment of common deformities of children in 1819 and subsequent reprints. The use of the same printing firm facilitated the easier exchange of engraving blocks but also meant each production went through the same processes from composition to printing, from binding to blocking. So this is just an example of... William Walsham's theory and practice of surgery is a well kind of standard text for medical students of the period. And on the right-hand side is James Woolley's 1903 catalogue with the same text, gold gilt font on the front covers. So the combination of all these features of the catalogue, instructive scientific content, text, illustrations, bound like a book, created a kind of acceptable format for the promotional publication and meant that it could be um, placed alongside practitioners' textbooks in their own library. So I've come up with a kind of mock bookshelf, uh, a mixture here of instrument catalogues and also medical textbooks, and they look fairly similar. Um, so both catalogues and textbooks were meant to be referred to over and over again, were meant to be books of reference. To signify ownership, practitioners or students using a communal library in a hospital or in a university, for example, wrote their names inside the catalogues and textbooks. So here's an example of 
O. Johnson, who wrote his name on William McCormick's surgical operations. Uh, O. Johnson appears to have been a medical student in Glasgow. And Mary Taylor, who appears to have been a nurse in Edinburgh Royal Infirmary, has written her name on Crone and Seisman's 1901 catalogue. OK, just to conclude. Um, as we've seen in the case of the medical trade catalogue, there was no apparent tension between professionalism and con- and commercialism, sorry. Um, Medical consensus over the catalogue was achieved through company development of the publication based on the exact professional requirements of practitioners, something general advertisers failed to do and seemed to have no interest doing as they aimed to target different and altogether more general markets. This professional consensus resulted from, firstly, companies targeting practitioners exclusively with the publication, so meaning that the ethics between practitioner and patient relationships didn't apply. Secondly, the exclusivity of the audience meant that practitioners were not trying to benefit financially from the provision of catalogue testimonials by indirectly advertising their services to the public, for example, but were keen to share their product experiences with their professional brethren. Thirdly, the the free sharing of product experiences and the inclusion of practitioners' eponymous tools within the Cowden catalogues was heralded as enhancing professional development rather than restricting it. And finally, catalogue producers ensured that their publications echoed the language of the profession and mimicked the interior and exterior form of medical textbooks, and as a result, practitioners' promotion of new products within its content was seen as advancing medical science. So in creating this kind of acceptable form of advertising, Companies actually changed the meaning of the catalogue and practitioners of the period came to view the publication as more than advertising material. Practitioners viewed the publication as reference material, not dissimilar to a medical textbook. So my aim in this paper has been to highlight really the need for historians to pay more attention to the ways in which professionals played a part in commerce and to how those in commerce played a part in medicine especially in this period where we tend to focus more on the professional aspect than the commercial. And by overemphasising the tension between commerce and professionalism in this period, usually with reference to patent medicines and other such products advertised to the general audience, historians have overlooked practitioner involvement in commercial activities at an acceptable level. As Anne Digby states, you know, Practitioners were merchants of services, but they were professionals. And similarly, I would argue, they were innovators, they were selling and promoting their own products, but they were also professionals. So I'd just like to end with a quote from an anonymous practitioner who wrote to the BMJ in 1896 to highlight the dangers of isolating the profession from the world of commerce. And he said, The attempt to build a Chinese wall round the field of medical thought cannot be expected to succeed in these days nor is it desirable that any attempt would make, uh, it should be made. And perhaps this quotation is kind of relevant to us now as historians as it was uh, for practitioners in the late 19th and early 20th century.